of Marion Libraries podcast is a show about bringing you the latest ideas, authors, and events happening in our community and beyond. And books. We love to talk about books. I'm Paula, and I have a secret. It's not something I'm proud of or something I usually talk about, but I guess I'm outing myself today on the podcast. I have a penchant for spending a little too much time in the 364 area of nonfiction. For non-library listeners, I'm sure you won't be surprised based on the title of this episode to know that I'm talking about true crime. It was during a session googling my genre of choice that I stumbled across the work of Amy Knight. I will admit here that time spent this way is usually an ill-advised and guilty pastime, but this time it was decidedly well-advised because it means I have a really interesting guest for you on the podcast today. The first thing I knew about Amy is that she is writing a book about the Somerton Man. But then she sent me her article entitled Making a Murderino, a Feminist Dissection of True Crime, in which, among other things, she writes about much of the media I consume regularly. I began to realize that what Amy is writing about is so much more than one cold case, and that I had to speak to her. Listen as Amy and I delve into the murky feelings and ethics about the genre we both are hesitant to say we love, but that fascinates us, one that she describes as strange and sometimes problematic. Tell me, I guess, tell me um, how you came to be interested in true crime initially. Mm I don't remember a time where I wasn't interested in it, I suppose, even when I didn't know what the term for true crime, the genre, was. I grew up really fascinated with Twin Peaks and um, detective narratives, I guess, Uh, the X-Files as well, anything that was sort of crime related and also supernatural Mm. but my interest in true crime strictly really took off when serial came out in 2014 yes um and that kind of unlocked the world of true crime podcasts for me and uh from there it it started to really ramp up yeah i think that's probably the same for a lot of people definitely yeah Uh, For me, I think it was through books initially, true crime books, but I think the serial podcast opened up the podcast Mm. true crime genre for me as well, and I think for lots of people. Okay, so let's start with The Somerton Man. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's your relationship with the story of The Somerton Man? Yeah, Uh, my relationship with The Somerton Man is probably quite similar to lots and lots and lots of Adelaideans or South Australians Mm -hmm. in that it had just always fascinated me. The mystery elements of it had fascinated me. Um, uh, Yeah, I didn't know anyone who was connected to the area. I didn't grow up in the area where it happened. Um, But uh, And I don't remember a time when I didn't know about it like I don't remember the first time I heard about the Somerton Man right it just seemed so ingrained in South Australian culture to Mm. me Uh, I'm now learning that there are lots of South Australians who have never heard of the Somerton Man I've just realized that too yeah 
because mm. when I've been talking about your book um, just around the library and yeah people don't always know um, yeah when you say the Somerton man it's not like when you say the Beaumont children yeah yeah to me they had been um, comparable in terms of notoriety or um, like cultural legacy in the mm. area um, yeah it's interesting to me that uh, as time progresses his story is becoming um, quite polarized I suppose there mm. are people who are incredibly invested in that story and will never ever ever let it go uh, and then there are people who just have never encountered it at all Wow. So how did you come to pair with the researcher at Flinders um, that has that, um, is, I guess, a background in DNA yep. research? Um, so Dr. Blackie and I went to university together studying very, very different fields. Yes. Um, she was dating a person in my course. Um, and as time has progressed, I've always remained friends with Renee. Uh, when I wrote Making a Murderino, uh, she and I reconnected over that. I can't remember why exactly, but she has had a similar interest to you and I in true crime and especially in podcasts. So we were, uh, exchanging recommendations and I said to her, look, like I want to write a book about women and true crime. I'm interested in your work because... Uh, I don't understand it on a technical level by any means. That makes it very fascinating to me. Um, I want to talk to you about the CSI effect and how um, when some people listen to true crime podcasts or watch CSI, or, um, we think we have an understanding of like, oh, I could read a blood splatter pattern or like they just need to... Um, like swab that for blood and they would be able to find out who the killer was and right. that kind of stuff um, I want you Renee to correct those um, assumptions for me uh, and by extension uh, hopefully people who read this will learn maybe we're not all armchair experts <laughs> um, she said to me are there any particular cases you want me to bone up on before we talk and I said um, I've always been interested in the Somerton Man uh, somehow that will form part of my book I don't know what exactly it will be yet um, but like do you want to just talk about the Somerton Man with me and she was like I don't know who that is oh. I'll, I'll go do some reading so she was one of the ones who didn't know yeah right and I was so surprised because we both have that rabid interest in true crime and you know we're both uh, almost exactly the same age I think our birthdays are a week or less than <laughs> right. a week apart and um, so and and she grew up closer to the area than I did but somehow she had missed just, that one. Yeah. Yeah. On the 1st of December 1948, a body was found on Somerton Beach, Glenelg, at 6.30am, an unidentified person who came to be known as the Somerton Man. 
Hidden in a fob pocket of the man's pants was a tiny scrap of rolled up paper that was torn from a copy of a book of poetry, on which the Persian phrase Tamam Shud, meaning ended or finished, was printed in distinctive font. Eventually, the book that the page was torn from was found, and in the inside back cover, detectives were able to make out notes from indentations left in the book. Information about the man, including his photograph and fingerprints, has been shared over the years with authorities nationally and internationally, and despite this, the mystery surrounding the identity of the Summerton man has never been solved. Some of the details about this case that have stumped investigators and intrigued the public over the years have been the labels out of his clothing had all been cut out. The man was clean-shaven, but carried no wallet or identification. Although poisoning was suspected, cause of death could not be definitively determined. Some of the notes from the indentations in the poetry book are thought to be a code, but it has never been deciphered. One of the notes in the poetry book was a telephone number of a local nurse. The nurse claimed not to know the man, but when she was shown a plaster cast bust that was taken of him, she looked, according to the police, as though she was about to faint. She looked away and would not look at the bust again. So she uh, went off and did a bit of reading, came back and was like, we have to get to the bust. The bust has hairs in it. Wow. My whole PhD was about analysing hairs. So because of a very strange and to me kind of typically Adelaidean coincidence, I happened to know the person who would be able to maybe do something with the... Uh, the matter that is left. Wow, that seems very serendipitous. Yeah, it totally <laughs> was. Um, and then I got to sort of vicariously live uh, the obsession and excitement of uh, discovering the case for the first time again through Renee um, as we started doing our research and stuff. So that was... Um, I mean, it, I want to say, like, yeah, that was so exciting. Mm. It's also really horrible because we're exploiting someone's tragedy in a way. So when I get a bit too, uh, like, frivolous about, you know, what a good time we had, then I immediately feel really guilty because that's, a, to me, it's it's quite an unethical thing to be that excited about. That's And that's the other thing that I really um, connected with in your article is that sort of balancing act of um, am I being entertained by somebody's tragedy and what does that say about me? And I guess that's why it's been a guilty pleasure for me and why I don't talk about it mm. because, um, because of that sort of juxtaposition or I don't know but and and another reason why I connected with um, the my favorite murder podcast is because they do seem to be able to uh, to manage that balancing act mm. of this are we is this entertainment or what yeah yeah I think for the most part they do a good job of that as well and it's definitely one of the major things about it that speaks to me in comparison to other podcasts where I really don't feel like they check themselves at all. I really want to talk about that, but just before we do, tell me um, where you got to, where you and Renee got to with your research, because at the end of the article, um, that first article about you that I read, it said, you know, sort of you were 
getting towards um, perhaps being able to solve? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I can't say anything about that um, because it's now an active and ongoing investigation wow. again. Wow, okay. Um, so my hands are really tied with not being able to say anything. Right. I'm sorry. I no, that's okay. That's totally cool. Eventually, yeah, maybe, uh, it will be in the book. Yeah. <laughs> um, that isn't on that itself is an ongoing investigation okay. too. Yeah, right. So where are you with your book? Um the Summerton Man stuff is um ticking along in the background while I now look at some other aspects of true crime in South Australia. Um that's also going to make up a part of yes. the book. Yep. Um, more so than the Summerton Man stuff will. I'd right. say that will probably be about like 30% of the journey overall. Um, but really the book is about critiquing the culture around true crime yeah. um, from a perspective of loving and hating it at the same time. Yeah. Um, when I stopped making films I moved more into film criticism and my day job is um, I'm the small screens editor at The Big Issue where I review TV and podcasts and games and apps and stuff so my background is in criticism and that type of writing will make up a huge huge part of the book as well um, as well as some memoir about you know growing up in the murder capital of the world supposedly right um yeah so i'm looking at some of the memoiry parts at the moment mm. um i really want to look at the dark tourism industry in south australia and the kind of boom in uh crime and paranormal tours and that kind of stuff that's really fascinating to me um I don't know if I am a, a believer or a skeptic about paranormal happenings. I would love to meet a ghost <laughs> if such a thing exists. Um, so uh, my hunt to try and meet a ghost will be part of the book as well. Wow, okay. Um, I'm interested in the idea that... Uh, on the streets women should be defending themselves so I'm going to take self-defense classes and see um, how that makes me feel I suppose if it makes me feel safer on the streets if it makes me feel less safe whether it's even the onus of women to be taking those kinds of classes yeah. that kind of stuff um, so as well as looking at uh, cultural production like podcasts and true crime books and that kind of stuff uh, I'm also very very concerned about the wider ramifications in society and um, just the epidemic of violence against women in Australia as well mm. so there are less fun but equally or <laughs> more important parts yeah, yeah. than the Summerton Man too yeah absolutely mm. yeah um, so maybe we could talk a bit about some of 
these other podcasts because sure. yeah like I said um, they were all almost all uh, ones that I listened to as well and I was interested um, in your take on the Canadian because I'm Canadian um, uh, podcast someone knows something and your yeah. criticism of what is his name David Ridgen yeah yeah because um, you start there so yeah tell me um, how you felt about David Ridgen's podcast yeah um, formally I think uh, the taking the backbone of an investigation is a very interesting form it's obviously really different to my favorite murder which is just entirely conversational they are pretty much reading the Wikipedia page right. um, so serial documentary is a really interesting way to look at true crime especially going back and investigating cases that for whatever reason weren't thoroughly looked at at the time and that's what Regan does to me I feel like he inserts himself into other people's narratives to a point that feels uh, lecherous to me in a way um how does it differ from the serial podcast for example um i mean that's really shades of gray isn't it like they almost did the same thing and Right, but have obviously definitely been accused of doing the same thing too. Mm. Um, I don't think Sarah Koenig talks about herself as much as as Ridgeway does, mm. um, and this is another interesting thing about podcasts: is when you can't see someone's face, you can't see their body language. Almost all you have to go on is the tone of their voice, and then that's entirely problematic in itself to critique someone's tone of voice. Mm. Um, but I get an instinctual feeling when I listen to him that it's like, this. Why are you making this about yourself? Mm. Like, uh, there's a part where he talks about being in his house and like surrounded by all his research and stuff and it's like wait are we meant to feel sorry for you I don't I don't think you are the person who's worst off in this situation right. like you're gonna be all right <laughs> um so little things like that that um I don't know vocal tics or trying to really nail what are you actually saying? Like, I can hear what your words, like I hear how your words form a sentence, but what's the subtext here? Mm. I think he made the story much more about himself because he happened to be born in the area than the team making serial made Syed's case about themselves. But I feel like um, that you know, the way that we, or that writers write about crime or podcasters um, bring crime now is so different from how it was done in the past. Because in the past, you would just be writing about the crime. Whereas these days, it does seem to be 
that you insert yourself and you sort of personalize it in some mm-hmm. way and that somehow allows people to access it more in yeah. some way that seems to be in like more recent um, mm. way of of um, bringing true crime to to media yeah yeah and I mean like I can criticize other people for doing that on paper that's certainly what I'm doing with the Somerton man so um, I have to keep myself in check too and right. um, yeah I I think often about podcasts and for another piece that I'm writing not for the book but um, a freelance piece I'm looking at um, how like how do we evaluate podcasts for those kind of ethical quandaries when most human communication is visual or with body language when we don't have any of those cues right you remove that yeah Yeah. how do we make these assumptions about people or you know what are they really based on and how much of that is around like the personal bias that every individual brings to consuming them Mm. i was I i just thought it was really interesting because the um um somebody knows something david ridgen podcast didn't stand out to me um, as doing that as much as um, Sword and Scale, oh, yeah. which you also mention in your um, in your article because mm. it's glaring <laughs> in in that one. So yeah, t- tell me about your um, what you thought of Sword and Scale. What uh, you think of Sword and Scale? Yeah. Do you still listen to Sword oh, and Scale? Absolutely not. Okay, no. um, listening to it again like when I wrote this piece last year and had to go back and listen to bits and pieces of Sword and Scale for research was like oof I want to take a bleach bath now (laughs) this guy is repulsive Uh, and if he ever hears this he'll probably attempt to dox me (laughs) he's just like uh, the poster boy for exploitative just people who get into true crime to exploit other people's trauma Mm. um, and really like take a holiday in it even his um tagline of what is this tagline of um the about the monsters how the monsters are real i find Mm. i find that even just that is is um irresponsible because Labeling certain people as monsters does not help um, our situation. No. I think we, we need to understand how people get to a certain place in their lives where they mm. perpetrate certain things. But just labeling them monsters yeah. and, and telling people monsters are out there, so be scared. Mm. Um, Definitely. Yeah. And the conflation of um, people affected by mental illness and like all serial killers like there are instances where he says really heinous stuff about people who've been affected by schizophrenia yep um where his insinuation is that every person affected by that is a potential threat to you yep which is so like beyond hyperbolic completely irresponsible like you said and 
just patently untrue. Yeah. You are just lying. <laughs> well, I don't I don't even think he's lying. I think he's just unaware of the fact that, you know, people who suffer from schizophrenia are more likely to be the victims of crime mm. than the perpetrators. But yeah, there is this um, notion out in in the public that people who suffer from, from schizophrenia are crazy murderers and want to harm people. And yeah, that that mm. just sort of lends uh, yeah, it so irresponsibly you, you puts more yeah um, impetus behind that. Yeah, yeah. So yes, on a, a scale from <laughs> sword and scale to someone knows something. Mm. Uh, yeah, what? Um, uh, I can't remember his name. Uh, uh, what Mike Day is doing yeah. is yes, far far more. Uh, disgusting <laughs> reprehensible <laughs> yeah. and every time Karen and Georgia mention how much they love someone knows something I kind of think like well I, I'm in the minority there must be something about that show that I'm not getting so they do love have do they mention sword and scale no okay but they mentioned someone knows something yeah yeah mm. uh, so there's something in that show that is resonating with other people and maybe it's another one that I need to revisit and really drill down into Mm. what about it Mm. doesn't sit right with me right so what other than my favorite murder what podcasts do you think do it right I think criminal is the absolute uh, like pinnacle of incredible empathetic storytelling really meticulous research Mm. and a compassionate host who is in it for the right reasons amplifying other people's stories um pure curiosity when that's appropriate um but just I feel like when you listen to Phoebe Judge, her empathy is palpable. Mm. Um, And the way that she can construct, or she and her producer can construct these really captivating true crime stories that aren't always just about, like, stabbing. Like, not every story on that show is depressing to listen to. Right. Um, so also broadening the understanding of what true crime can be mm. is really important. Um, one of my favourite episodes was really early on and it was about the um, trafficking of Venus flytraps. Oh. And that was so cool because it was like the... Like, exciting like the tantalizing crime like mystery to be solved sort of element but you know they could achieve that without having to commodify women's bodies or like maybe making re-listeners relive an assault experience or whatever um that's my absolute favorite show I think criminal is so so good yeah so why do you think women are so fascinated 
by true crime. Mm. Um, well, I can speak for myself personally. I don't feel like I can speak for all women. Mm. Um, for me, it's about confronting fear of what feels like an imminent danger to me. Um, whether that fear is based on a real potential danger or it's fed by the fact that I keep consuming true crime uh, is hard to extrapolate, I suppose. Uh, and there isn't too much research on the subject either, which feels like massive missed opportunity to me mm. uh, there is one study that was done about 10 years ago uh, in Illinois I think University of Illinois uh, where online there were surveys asking women um, you're in a bookstore you can take a book home for free would you want this book about two women who fought in the Gulf War or two women who were murdered by a serial killer and um, almost three quarters of the women were like bam serial killer. serial killer book yep. um, and then the researchers played with different um, plot elements like you can choose between these two murder books in one of them like the woman uses a trick to escape her killer and in one she just gets killed which one do you want and women were like give me one the one with the trick right <laughs> and huh. um so there's also an element so i think that element speaks to the idea of some women might be engaging with true crime to protect themselves mm. like if i amass this huge thorough knowledge of how every victim or survivor has been attacked and how some of them have got away when it happens to me I'll know what to do right uh, and that's certainly an element that feels um, very familiar to me okay um I just wish there was more research on it so that there's like a proven literature on it and not just me being like well here's <laughs> what I think and I asked my two friends who listened to me my favorite murder and they agree so <laughs> This we can apply to every woman in the world. Because um, I also noticed that there are uh, women in like, the My Favourite Murder group on Facebook or just other places or just like people that I meet and talk to about serial killers because <laughs> I guess that's the corner I've painted myself into. Uh, they come at it from definitely more of the black boudet end of the scale okay. where I'm like, oh. yeah, no, we're not really the same at right, all. Right, right. <laughs> um, so uh, as much as I would like to say women are all in it because we identify with victims invariably and we are endlessly compassionate and empathetic for other people's stories i think yes a huge percentage of women do enjoy it well, no we don't enjoy it for those reasons we consume it for those reasons mm. i think a smaller percentage of women do enjoy it for the salacious aspects and 
all of that is going to be completely influenced by whatever lived experiences we've had uh, thus far in our lives Mm -hmm. that's always going to color how we engage with any type of media yeah the next one that i'm going to be doing a lot of research about um happened um a little bit north of adelaide a hundred or so years ago Uh, there was a woman called elizabeth Woolcock, who was charged with poisoning her husband um, who had been abusing her like by the accounts I've read so far he sounded like a horrible horrible person um, and so to save herself allegedly well I guess uh, according to the courts she poisoned him um, and she was hanged at Adelaide Jail. She's the only woman ever executed in South Australia. Uh, but just before she was hanged, she told a priest, I didn't do it. Cops told me to say I did it. I didn't know what else to do. Like She'd been abused her whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a really horrific life story. Um, was told she had done it so she eventually came to believe well I must have I don't really know what else to do so I'll confess to it kind of like that false confession in um making a murderer yeah yeah right Mm -hmm. um and it must be something that happens I don't know not quite often but it's not an uncommon thing I suppose um yeah so she was executed even though maybe she hadn't done it after all Uh, so that's something that's going to be a part of the book as well because she was the only woman ever put to death here and it's said that her ghost is quite active in Adelaide jail so I think I've read that mm, Mm. uh, if I could meet any ghost I'm really um, banking on it being uh, Ms. Walcock so that I can you know, I don't know I don't know tell her I'm really sorry for what happened to you right. it sounds really freaking horrible <laughs> um, yeah mm. uh, there, I think there was also a campaign a little while ago to have her pardoned posthumously but I don't know if that ever happened so that'll be another part of the research as mm. well um, I think that's an intriguing semi-local case um, that I would like to know much more about mm. and about her, like the the woman at the heart of it. Right. Um, have you been on any of those paranormal? Yeah, right. So many. I didn't realize. I didn't realize that was like such a big thing. Mm. Maybe it seems like a big thing to me because it's like one of my four interests in the whole world. <laughs> um, so in the semicircle of friends I have who are all um, have a similar temperament to us around this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. um, it seems like it is very much a <laughs> prominent aspect of South Australian culture 
uh, perhaps to people who go outside more and <laughs> don't just uh, seep in this world their entire lives. Uh, maybe it's not. I don't know that I'm the litmus test for <laughs> normal, non-murdery things to do in South Australia. I must admit, I have been on a murder tour of Adelaide, mm. um, and I've never done that anywhere else. So Okay. <laughs> But um, what did you learn on your tour? Oh, I can't even remember now. It was, you know, when I first moved here six years ago. But um, yeah. Yeah. What do you think of the fact that Adelaide's got this reputation? Is I didn't know it was the murder capital of the world. I thought it was murder capital of Australia. But, uh, <laughs> it was, but either way, it's not good. Yeah, it, well, and either way, it's not true either. Okay. Um, that was a very, very hyperbolic headline uh, that blew up after um, a doco came out about Joanne Lees in the early 2000s. Oh, okay. Um, I thought you were going to say Snowtown. So it would have been... Yeah, so it was in a doco about Joanne Lees, but just after Snowtown. Okay. uh, Yeah, like a year or so after, I guess. I guess the thing is that the murders that happen here seem to be bizarre. Yeah, just like off the scale horrific Mm. um yeah so maybe it's well it's almost certainly not that we have the most like by volume yeah we do not uh but certainly the ones that we do have are sensationalized uh, yeah and and incredibly gruesome all murders are gruesome mm-hmm. um, but y- there is something about it that lingers here so uh, maybe it's natural that the tours would spring up around that mm-hmm. um, certainly the ones in so I've done one in Port Adelaide uh, I've done a West Terrace Cemetery one I've done the Somerton Man, Somerton Man one a couple of times. Mm. Um, if nothing else, they do teach people about uh, a certain type of South Australian history. Right. It's almost always an exclusively white history of mm. South Australia, uh, which is an issue unto itself. Yeah. Um, Yeah, in some ways they are a great way to get people to engage with the history of a place. Um, You know, if you come for the salacious details and the excitement and maybe you'll meet a ghost and that kind of stuff, like, that's a good uh, gateway drug to teaching people about history, but then we... (laughs) Maybe need to do more about the types of histories that we think define this place. Sure. Hmm. So where are you with the book now? Uh, do you have a publisher? No, I've been speaking with a couple of publishers, um, mentoring it for the Scribe Nonfiction Prize. Um, 
it's at a point, I guess, where maybe there's not quite enough to show anyone okay. yet. And I knew that research would always be a big part of the book. I severely underestimated how much the research, um, how much time the research would involve. Right. So uh, that's been a, a learning curve for me, right. going from writing um, like 3,000 word essays like the Making Murderino Piece for Lifted Brow to writing like a 70,000 word book. Right. There is no in-between point <laughs> between 3,000 and like 60 or 70,000 words. Right. Um, so, And I guess as you say, you do want to approach it in a responsible way so you want your research to be thorough and exactly yeah yeah mm. and um as with any kind of research it's a continual rabbit hole of investigating this thing and then mm. finding an offshoot going one way and how do you know when to stop yeah like, imagine you could just yeah just go down rabbit holes and never come out yes <laughs> definitely um so yeah the book is the writing is a third of the way done and it's impossible to quantify how far i am through the research because you don't know what you don't know sure right but it's interesting and um it's a very valuable experience even though it's usually not a very uh, energizing or mm. replenishing or pleasant one um, I don't know sometimes I think oh it's good to know these things it's good to know what's going like and it absolutely is good to know what's going on in the world mm. um, but what do you do you have something on the other side that you use to temper the mm. murder um, aspect of your life <laughs> like Lots do you paint flowers nanny. or something what was that like watching the nanny <laughs> the nanny <laughs> Uh, yeah watching the nanny and listening to stevie nicks um i do have to consciously reel in like the sun has gone down it is time to leave this until tomorrow Mm. um my partner maybe doesn't need to know every intricate detail of what I've been reading about today mm-hmm. uh, it's okay to just do a nice thing sometimes yeah, definitely that doesn't involve torture it's not only okay I think it's necessary <laughs> yes yes <laughs> to continue is. to function in a healthy way in the world mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah there is an element about it that feels really addictive and mm. um watching the way that other people talk about their true crime consumption consumption in like the my favorite murder groups and stuff there seem to be people who can withstand forensic files like just 24 7 around the clock and that's not my disposition at all and I have phases where I will really like absolutely go way too hard for a couple of weeks or a month and then 
just be like I can't go back to that right now like I know put the Stevie Nicks on yeah yeah always (laughs) so managing that kind of biorhythm the peaks and troughs around how much I can expose myself to at a time Mm. um, has been a learning curve and something that has made this a much lengthier process than I'd expected but like it's good to know your limits I hope that there's stuff in my writing that reaches women specifically um, that we can all feel a, a shared Um, not a shared sense of identity because everyone's different but to know that there are other people that like the same things as you like and I hope that other women get that from reading my work there are parts of the memoiry parts about my book which deal with um, assault and gendered violence and that kind of stuff Um, maybe some of that will grow into I don't know I feel really uncomfortable saying I'm a voice for other people I think that's such a savioristic that's I guess that's the element about um Ridgen that makes me so uncomfortable is okay. that yeah he he thinks he is the voice for that community mm. rather than amplifying the voices that, that already there. exist within mm, that's that community and mm. um, so niggly little I don't know semantics like that mm. um, gnaw away at me like I would hate to think that I was overstepping my mark anywhere um, speaking for other women rather than speaking with other women. Mm. Well, certainly your um, Murderino, Murderino article spoke to me. Oh, and Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, your treatment of the true crime um, genre that is trying to come at it from a more empathetic and compassionate um viewpoint as opposed to just consuming the sensational sort of Mm. salacious details of it yeah resonated with me from that article so thank you so thank you for writing that i would say my pleasure (laughs) we've already discussed how it's not our pleasure but (laughs) my duty is a writer and critic. She's the small screens editor at The Big Issue, and her work appears in The Lifted Brow, Kill Your Darlings, Little White Lies, and more. She's currently writing her first book, True, about Australian women and the true crime boom. I'm not sure there is a typical road that leads authors to writing true crime, but I found my next guest, Thomas Mann's journey to writing his book, Body in the Freezer, The Case of David Sack, an interesting one. After a 20-year career teaching agricultural science, Tom was looking for a change of scenery. He started teaching English as a second language at the Woomera Detention Centre, and this led to helping people he met there to tell their stories, an endeavour that ended in the book Desert Sorrow, Asylum Seekers at Woomera. 
But then he was approached to tell a different sort of story, one of being wrongly accused um, of murder. Uh, David was about 19 at the time, and he lived with uh, the Adelaide prominent Adelaide lawyer, Darren Stevenson, on Green Hill Road, in a funny old house, as everyone says. <laughs> and most people remarked on the funny old house when they passed by it. So that it was like a home office environment, but David had been enticed, if you like, by a friend of Terence's, Gino Gambadella, to come and meet Terence. Uh, they formed a homosexual relationship, which lasted for about three years. And then at the end of that three years, um, David was asked by um, Terence, according to him, to go to Cooper PD. He was staying with him, Terence, at the time. But soon after, uh, Derrance was found murdered and his body was found in the chest freezer of his home. And uh, from then on, um, the evidence pointed towards David. He had actually taken Derrance's car, the prosecutor said, and fled to Cooper Pedy. And, and all the evidence, um, there was quite a, a body of circumstantial evidence at the time, seemed to point towards David as the... Uh, as the accused and the one who actually committed the murder. David approached Tom to write his story when he was strangely released after 14 years in prison. 14. Now, David didn't really want to come out. Uh, the principal reason was that he wasn't prepared to say he was guilty of the crime. And if you come out on parole, you're supposed to say, well, I'm, I'm sorry I committed the crime, I'm prepared to go on with these programs for rehabilitation and so on. But David wasn't prepared to do that. Nevertheless, the, uh, they managed to uh, build a case for freeing um, David specifically. And it's a fairly unique situation, I think, where the chairman of the, or chairperson of the parole board uh, allowed uh, David to come out into society after only spending 14 years in jail. Tom talks about the time when the murder occurred, 1979, as being a tumultuous one in Adelaide's history. Uh, there's a lot of other little bits and pieces attached to that at the moment because um, other murders were committed soon after Derrance's murder. And, uh, for example, there were two young men who were killed, one whose name was Alan Barnes, and he was killed about two weeks after Derrance, and another one, Neil Muir, he was actually killed about two months after the killing of Derrance. So um, there's a possible relationship between all three, but uh, that'd have to be uh, explored more fully. There was evidence against David, though some of the circumstances surrounding that evidence, Tom says, is mysterious. Um, the things that went against David were that uh, he, he, he possibly had a, a lover's quarrel right. uh, uh, with Derrance, and according to Gina Gambadella, he had mentioned the freezer and the possibilities of putting her body in the freezer sometime before. Um, he was spotted by a, a witness coming out of the house, and around uh, about the time that Derrance was supposed to be murdered. Um, according to the prosecutor, he went back a bit later in the evening to clean up the house with some other people. And then he then he went to Kula PD via Port Wakefield and some people spotted him on the way to Port Wakefield. 
evidence uh, was proven flawed later on, especially that given by the um, chief forensic pathologist at the time, that was um, Colin Mannock, and he was principally involved in quite a number of high-profile cases before that, and uh, his um, credentials have been discredited, and his way of handling these investigations has um, been looked at and found wanting, uh, so uh, these are about professional people, so um, there's a lot to be said against uh, poorly given evidence coming from him mm. at the time for the trial of Zach and other others as well. Mm. So poor Zach didn't really have much of a chance, and um, but there are quite a few mysterious things that went on at the same time. So what do we know about the murder of Darren Stevenson? Tom explains. They found that most likely it was an execution-style murder, and uh, there was a, a person, Gina Gambardella, who was a procurer of young boys for Stevenson, Stevenson and others, the Stevenson the lawyer and others. Um, there was a police culture that condoned homosexuality, uh, that condoned uh, well, um, the fact of targeting um, homosexual people at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that goes way back to 1972 when uh, three Vice members were allegedly threw uh, George Duncan, Dr. George Duncan, into the river in Torrance and he drowned. Yes. Uh, there was a mysterious caller, and I might just mention that. He actually called into uh, the Legal Services Commission offices um, oh, it was the day after the murder of Darren Stevenson. That was a Tuesday. Right, and you start um, your book there. I thought that was interesting. Yes, that's right. And he said something like to the secretary, can I help you? She said, the secretary is... And then he said, is Justin and the man asked him. And then, have you an appointment? No. And then um, he said, I need help. And the secretary asked, what type of matter is it? A crime, he said. And then she said, have you seen a solicitor? Or is a solicitor willing to act for you? And then he said, only Darren Stevenson. But when I left him last night, he was in no condition to act for anyone. Mm. So, I mean, last night was when he was murdered. Right. But he might have been at the scene when he was actually murdered. And we do know that Darren knew Alan Barnes. And Alan Barnes looked quite similar to, um, in some respects, to he's a young lad looked similar to David Sachs at the time with longish hair mm. and slim bulls and so on. Uh, but his body was found two weeks after the murder of Darren Stevenson. Now, whether you can say there's a, uh, well, that was a coincidence or perhaps there was a tie-up, maybe he was present with um, at Darren Stevenson's murder and participated in some way. Mm. And maybe they felt he was a threat and perhaps he was um, killed. Uh, to silence him. Mm. Uh, I just mentioned a couple of other things that a couple of nights before, Derrinson, Derrinson David came back home late from a, a nightclub in Hindley Street and uh, Derrinson received a call from someone about two o'clock on Sunday morning, I think it was, and David caught something of the call, especially when Derrinson said, I want to get out, I want to get out. An investigative uh, journalist with the advertiser at the time, Dick Wordley. Uh, I could read this a little bit if that's any Sure. Help. Why don't you do that? 
he, he wrote, Darren Stevenson, to whom I spoke by coincidence on the afternoon outside court at the day of his death, was not connected directly to the family, that's the family involved in those five uh, murders of the young men, and he could have been. He knew the identity of those who were, or are, and with the supply of the drugs they use in their rituals, and from remarks he made only hours before his murder, shot coldly through the back of the head, not as one may think in keeping with some homosexual argument involving jealousy, but more in keeping with the mafia-linked style of silencing an informer, that he may have been on the verge of blowing the whistle. Mm. Uh, well, that ties in with what uh, David said about um, Derrance, saying he wanted to get out, I want to get out, and then he sobbed. So, um... Mm. And then he, he and Wordy goes on just a little bit more. Were Friday nights at Stevenson home used for word homosexual activities? With several prominent Adelaideans present, was Stevenson, if not actively involved, aware of what, who the family were, and their evil? Was Stevenson, from his own remarks and tears, about to blow the whistle? From statements provided, the answer seems in all cases to be yes. Wow. So that's the word of uh, Derek, um, sorry, Dick Worsley, the um, journalist at the time of the advertiser. So um, you, you can see uh, some of the mysteries that are surrounding the, surrounding the case now. I think you're beginning to see uh, um, none of the evidence really stands up in terms of, uh, uh, you know, saying that David was the killer. Yeah, it's because all very circumstantial and disputable. It's seems. circumstantial. The witness who claimed to see um, David coming out of the house round about the time that he was supposed to be murdered early in the evening, um, he actually, uh, this was two months later, he was able to pick out from 12 slides. Um, he'd never seen David before, and he worked at an office just opposite Derrance's home. So he claimed that he was able to pick David out from a group of 12 slides and point to him in court. Now, that seems incredible to me that someone could do that two months later after seeing someone casually, you know, at night time. Right. Uh, and none of the events that follow, uh, the timing of events, uh, fit in uh, with, with what, you know, with what really happened, I think, because... Um,
and I believe there were about 65 cattle grids. He had engine trouble. Yeah, he, he described. He described had to be how he. By truck driver. Yeah, he described how he got uh, bogged and. Um, yeah, bogged and stopped at three petrol stations. Yeah. I don't think you can say travel from Adelaide to Coolpity in nine and a half hours even. Mm. I mean, uh, you ask someone today, it'd be hard enough to travel to Coolpity in nine in nine and a half hours with field roads. Yeah. Um, so I mean, if you think about it all now, David has sort of become an assassin because it's an execution style murder. He's a he's a rally driver, he drives mm. breakneck speed and he's also a, what someone said, a master of charades and an impersonator, but that's also in the story as well. Right, all at the age of nineteen. I mean he just to me it seemed like he was just so young. Right from when he met um Darrance, you know, he was only not not even 16. Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. I think when he was 16, uh, you know, I think he was fairly naive. He was just taken in and um, felt that Durrance was like a, a father figure, helped mm-hmm. him find work and looked after him well and formed this homosexual relationship, which he fell into. Mm-hmm. So and later on, of course, he married and had two teenage... Today, he's got two teenage sons. So, you know, it's... Um, I guess it's just the way that things happened to David, unfortunately, and he he was naive not to realize that Derrance was not in, uh, was into defending criminals who were involved in drugs and associated with them. Um, while he was respected as a lawyer, you know, he, he, he was a very flamboyant man and mixed with all kinds of um, people that were involved in criminal activities, I yeah. suppose. Uh, so, you know, David was probably naive from that point of view, and I don't think he could have done anything to merit being an assassin or a rally driver or anything that they that he, the police claim he, he could have been. Who did murder Darren Stevenson? Tom says it's very difficult to say. The only person that we know of that might have been involved in, uh, was Gino Gambardella. Now, soon after... The trial, he fled to Italy with his two sons, I believe. Right. So he had, there's no doubt that he was a sexual predator and the police were on him, onto him, and uh, probably they were going to arrest him. And he was facing some criminal charges, um, and Derrance was defending him at the time, too. So whether um, that's all linked is a bit of speculation, but uh, and, uh, I, I believe he was involved in some way anyway. I can say that with some confidence. If shows like Making a Murderer, the hugely popular Netflix series, and podcasts like Serial from This American Life are any indication, there is an appetite for stories about miscarriages of justice. Tom talks about the importance of fresh and compelling evidence. There are quite a number of cases in Australia, and I, I, I became more interested in them. I, I became, uh, I suppose, um, I, my work captured the interest of um, Bob Knowles, who was a, a keen advocate for justice in terms of the, uh, these cases that had sort of accumulated in, in the different states. And he, he, he has actually been instrumental in one of the big problems that we've had in the legal system is that you can only have one appeal. And um, so if there's any fresh evidence coming to light after that appeal, you can't really consider it. Uh-huh. You can only consider things on points of law. Uh, 
you know, after you've gained sufficient evidence, which is um, fresh and compelling, as they say, fresh mm-hmm. and compelling evidence, enough to consider that the trial needs to be opened up again or there needs to be a hearing on the case to examine that fresh and compelling evidence. So is that the case now? You can have a second appeal? Yes, that's right, you can, yes. Well, I think South Australia was the first state to institute that that enactment of the law, and that was in 2013, I believe. So that's been going on for a few years now, and other states like Tasmania and I think Western Australia are following also in that pathway. Interesting. So, yes, yeah, so it's, it's, it's probably a general trend. I believe it because uh, Britain has, has already embarked on that uh, as well. Because I believe in the 1980s they realised they were in the same kind of situation where a large number of cases need to be looked at again in terms of the evidence that was presented at trial, and um, they picked I think about 400 cases that needed to be re-examined, and of those 400, I believe 300, that's about 70 or 75% of those, um, the person, the accused person shouldn't have been convicted for the offence. Wow, and is it, is it largely... These are uh, high-profile, probably murder, uh, uh, most of these, um, you know, convictions were for murder. And is it largely based on DNA evidence that these are being overturned? Yeah, yes, that's uh, what I've contributed a great deal to, yes, the DNA evidence as well. Yeah, because that opened up the field quite enormously too. to write these sorts of stories, they seem to come to him. Most recently, a couple has approached him claiming to have evidence about one of Adelaide's most persistent and pervasive mysteries. And so Thomas Mann's next book will be about the Beaumont children. I asked staff for recommendations on true crime shows, podcasts, and of course books they found compelling. So if you're interested in more true crime, check out our show notes where I'll include staff's suggestions. And who am I kidding? Probably a few of my own. Thanks for listening to the City of Marion Libraries podcast. And guys, keep listening because episodes coming soon include live recordings of two author talks we are super excited about. Leader, speaker, director, and author Taryn Brumfit will be visiting us. Her movie, Embrace, and her body image movement is encouraging women all over the world to harness positive body image. Such a hugely important message, so don't miss that. Then later, we will have the New York Times best-selling author and global literary sensation, Leanne Moriarty. Her brand new book is out this month, and she'll be sitting down with ABC's Allie Clark to tell us all about it. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, guys. <laughs>